أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد فإن خير الحديث كتاب الله وخير الهادي هادي محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة جلالة وكل جلالة في النار الحمد لله the responsibility of sharing this talk has evolved once again upon me, nothing can be said about me sharing this talk every time. But it is my pleasure to introduce to you the, the very well-known, very famous scholar Abu Amin Abid al-Fidis. Best of introducing him to um, represent one of his books in front of you, The Fundamentals of Tawheed. And I hope after this talk, most of us will be motivated to go and buy this book, which I hope should be like essential notes to clarify anything which left, which was left unanswered. At the back of the book we have a small description about some of his biographical points. I'd like to read that out first, and then hand you over to the speaker to talk about the uh, subject of the Rahid, entitled Worshipping Allah in His Oneness, Away from Giving His Partner. He will continue to speak, and at the end of it, inshallah, people can ask questions of the floor. We'll take one question from the brother and one question from the sister section of the microphone. And I shall be con- uh, controlling who gets to ask what, inshallah. We hope the questions asked will be sensible and not in order to uh, either abuse or insult or prevent anger or frustration, but just simply to clarify points and gain benefits of knowledge, inshallah. <laughs> so Abu Amin Abdul was born in Jamaica but grew up in Canada where he accepted his in 1972. He completed the diploma course in Arabic in Medina and went on to obtain a Bachelor of Arts in Usul of Deen in the Islamic University of Medina in 1979 and a Master of Arts degree in Islamic Theology from the University of Iraq in 1985. He has taught Islamic education and Arabic on the junior high and high school levels at Marathon Riyadh School from 1979 to 1987. Presently, he is enrolled in the Islamic Studies Doctoral Program at the University. And then he gives a list of books that he has authored, most of which are on sale outside, and inshallah we are all encouraged to benefit from the books to get from the maximum, inshallah. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, wa salatu wa salam ala Rasulil Kareem. وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بالسنة ليوم الدين All praise due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on his last Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day As was introduced to you the topic is that of worshipping Allah in his oneness and this of course is a translation of the Arabic phrase Tawheed al-Ibadah which can also be expressed as maintaining the unity of Allah in worship. To understand this topic and what it is trying to get across to you it's necessary first to understand what is meant by Tawheed? Of course, that would be a lecture in itself, and I'm not going to try to cover every aspect of Tawheed, but I'll only try to get across to you something of the essence. The essence being 
the uniqueness of Allah. Though it is commonly translated as the oneness of Allah, I prefer in English to use the uniqueness of Allah. Because when we use the term uniqueness in English, we're talking about a oneness but a special oneness. Whereas when we talk about merely oneness, for example, there's one red house on my street. This is one, but there could be other red houses on other streets. You see, there's a oneness here, but it's not talking about uniqueness. Whereas when we speak of the oneness of Allah, what we really mean is a oneness in the purest sense, in the, in the, in the sense of being unique. The oneness of Allah is different from the oneness of anything else, anything in creation. So, what we're talking about is that the divine attributes, how we understand Allah, is in such a way that He does not share His attributes with His creation, nor does the creation share uh, any of His attributes. Neither does Allah have human characteristics or characteristics of His creation, nor does the creation have characteristics of Allah. This is what we are really talking about when we speak of Tawheed. And this is clearly illustrated in the verse in Surah Shura, verse 11, wherein Allah says, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ basir And we also know it in Surah Al-Ikhlas, وَلَمْ يَكُلْ لَهُ كُفُوًا Ahad, that there is nothing like Allah and it is on the basis of that that Islam stands alone amongst all of the religions around the world when people start to search to find out what is the correct religion because every religion says they are the correct religion and Islam is no different Islam says we are the correct religion our way is the only way and everyone says the same thing how does a person distinguish how does he know a person who may be born in a Muslim family but his Islam or the Islam of his family is cultural Islam you know they gather for the cultural gatherings they have Islamic names on it but he doesn't know anything about Islam really or the person may be a Christian or a Buddhist or whatever. How does he know that Islam is the right way? It's from this point. This is the starting point which clearly illustrates that Islam is the true religion of God. Because it is only in Islam that Allah is given His correct status. It is only in Islam that all of the attributes of Allah are given to Allah without any compromise. All of the other systems, all of the other religions, all of them share some of Allah's attributes with the creation. Or they give Allah the attributes of His creation. It's either one or the other. If they deny Allah, then they take the attributes of Allah and they give it to the creation. Atheists who hold that matter, for example, always existed. It's eternal. Matter is eternal. They say there's no God. 
It's just matter. Matter was always there. And they have to add matter in motion. Because otherwise, then they run into the problem of how did things start to change. You know, well, they say matter in motion. And as it is in motion, accidentally hitting each other, they start to form molecules, etc., etc. Matter in motion is eternal. So what have they done? They have taken the eternal attribute of Allah. Allah is the only eternal. And they have given it to matter. So they don't have to deal with responsibility. They have deified matter. They have made matter their God. Because everything, according to them, is a product of matter. Matter in motion. Their lives, everything about them. What controls their lives? They're made up of matter. Everything. So matter becomes their God. Of course, Christians we know, you know, who say that God became a man in the form of Jesus because mankind had committed sin from the time of Adam and this sin was inherited generation after generation and it had reached a stage where the only sacrifice that could be made to atone for that sin was a divine sacrifice so God had to become a man kill himself to please himself you know this is uh, Christian theology so much of the world follows it so when you look at it what is it saying it's actually nonsensical because what it has done is it has played with people's minds it has taken away reason from people because to accept this premise or this statement one has to turn off one's mind to accept that the ever-living God died this is nonsense to accept that the Creator became His creation is nonsense though the Christian will in a minute grab you and say well can't Allah do anything you know and of course we have in Allah ala kulli shayin qadir yes Allah says he's able to do all things say, so you have to say yes so he says well okay why, why couldn't he become a man why couldn't he have a son but the point is when we say Allah can do anything we're talking about anything which is consistent with him being Allah not anything which will make him less than Allah no. we don't include those in the realm of possibilities so it becomes a nonsensical question to ask can the ever-living die? no once you said ever-living it means cannot die never dies so to ask can the ever-living die is a nonsensical question similarly can the creator become his creation is nonsensical because if the creator became the creation then he is in need of a creator he's no longer creator so it's nonsensical but for Christians this idea of God being able to do anything what it led them to is this concept of God becoming man God taking on the attributes of men and whether you go to Buddhism or you go to Hinduism or all the other isms this is what we find in there you have either people who are half God half men or God-men, they call them avatars, you know, amongst the Hindus. You know, you have uh, gods that have relations with um, 
men and have children, you know, half gods, half men, like the Greeks and the Romans, they have this. And in all of these cases, what we find here is a confusion in the minds of people as to who God is. It is only in Islam that the knowledge of who God is is clear. It's reasonable. It makes sense. It's not something which requires, you know, mental gymnastics. You know, like when the Christian says, you know, God is one, but he's three. You know, one plus one plus one equals one. You know, this is mental gymnastics. In Islam, we don't have anything like that. It's clear cut. And it is from this point, the starting point of Tawheed. The uniqueness. The oneness of Allah. And what this does for us also is, for those of us that are involved in any way in the sciences or in any of the philosophies, etc., that are out there as we study in the universes, etc., we have to always keep this concept of the uniqueness of Allah in mind because so much of philosophy and science today seeks to give the attributes of Allah to His creation. Much of it seeks to do so. So it's very important for those of us that are involved in the educational systems here that we are wary, we are looking out for the various points at which Allah's attributes are being given to the creation. A classical example is that of Einstein's theory of relativity. This is something anybody who you know, does his O-levels, he has to go through this. He has to learn you know, in uh, physics, he, uh, he has to learn E equals MC squared. Know, energy equals mass times the square of the speed of light, which translates into English as energy or matter can neither be created nor destroyed. That's how it's written out. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Energy evolves into mass or matter, and matter changes back into energy. It's a continuum. They split the atom with the same theory. You know, the atomic bomb, hydrogen bomb, you know, atomic energy is all based on this theory of Einstein. However, as the, as the theory stands, it is for us a statement of kufr, a statement of disbelief, a statement in which one gives the attributes of Allah to his creation. Because when you say that energy can neither be created nor destroyed, you're saying energy is uncreated. It does not have a beginning. That is Allah. Allah is uncreated. He alone has no beginning. When you say it can neither be, de be created nor destroyed, means it, it has no end. Allah is the one who has no end. All else is destroyed by Allah. It's created by Him, destroyed by Him. So, for a Muslim who is studying in such systems, though he is required to produce this on his examination, because if he says, no, this is a statement of kufri, he's going to fail his whole levels, and, you know, <laughs> what is he going to do after that? Well, you know, he has to uh, put, you know, in brackets after it, for example, by man. That's all right. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed by man. We're safe now, you know. When we look at worship, because we're talking about the unity 
or maintaining the unity of Allah in our worship, we also need to understand what is worship in Islam. The term used is ibadah. And ibadah comes from the Arabic word abd. I'm sure most of you have heard this before. Abd meaning a servant or a slave. One who has submitted his will to his master. So, what we're talking about here in ibadah is the submission of the human will to the divine will. And when we speak of the divine will to the will of God, we're talking about the legal will. Legal will, in Arabic they call it al-irada, al-shari'ya, you know, as opposed to the creational will, al-irada, al-kawniya, or al-mashi'a, al-kawniya, you know, this is distinction made because there are some things in this life which we have no control over. It's the will of Allah and man's will cannot interfere. It is the will of Allah that when you jump up, you fall down. No matter how hard you work and you try, you cannot jump and keep going up. This is already set. This is, we call it the law of nature, you know. People again giving the laws of Allah to you know, some, because nature used to be one of the gods of uh, Rome and Greece, you know. So, it becomes a nature god, you know. But the point is that this is the law of Allah in nature. There's nothing, we cannot change, we cannot, uh, our will cannot affect this. But our will comes into play in the choice. The choice of whether we obey God or we don't obey God. Allah wills or wishes for us that we obey Him. But He has given us a choice as to whether we will or we won't. Worship in Islam is making that choice to obey the will of Allah. Another way of expressing it is whatever is pleasing to Allah is worship. So we perform worship by doing whatever is pleasing to Allah and avoiding whatever is displeasing to Allah. Now, how do we know what is pleasing to Allah and what is not? Of course, this is not a matter of guesswork. You know, we don't before doing things, think, think to ourselves, well, is this pleasing to Allah? I think it should be pleasing to Him, so I'll go ahead and do it. You know, no, it's not a matter of guesswork. It's not up to you and I individually to, to determine what is pleasing to Allah and what is not pleasing to Allah. It is the Sharia. The Sharia, the divine law, it has defined for us what is pleasing to Allah and what is displeasing to Allah. So, we perform ibadah, we, we worship Allah by submitting to the Sharia. And of course, the Sharia is very clear what its sources are, etc. And what we can understand also from this principle of worship is that it represents the essence of the message of the prophets. It's the essence of Islam and it is the essence of the message of the prophets. 
Allah says in the Quran, وَلَقَدْ بَعَثْنَا فِي كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ رَسُولًا أَنْ يَعْبُدُ اللَّهُ وَجْتَنِبُ الطَّاهُوتِ Verily, we have sent to every nation a messenger commanding them to worship Allah and to avoid false gods. That's the essence of the message. That was what was carried by all of the messengers of Allah. Though today we have the issue of belief in God, because you have people who are denying God's belief, the Quran, when you go through it, what you find is most of the Quran, 99% of the Quran, is really confirming the worship that worship should be directed to Allah. Not trying to convince man that Allah exists. There are a few verses. Were they created from nothing or did they create themselves? This is a question for a person who thinks that you know, there is no creator. You can ask yourself that. However, the vast majority of the Quran speaks to the issue of worshipping Allah alone. And the Prophet Muhammad has clarified for us in a number of his different statements, different aspects of worship which we need to be very clear on so that we don't consider some things not to be worship when in fact they are worship and other things to be worship when in fact they are not worship. He has made certain statements to clarify for, them, for us that. For example, he said, Ad-Dua huwa al-ibadah calling, when you call on someone, this is prayer. This is worship. So if you call on anyone besides Allah, you are in fact involved in worshipping other than Allah. Very important. Because all of those people who have been caught up in the practice of praying to intermediaries calling on others besides Allah in order that their worship or their needs may be fulfilled by Allah all of this involves worshipping other than Allah this is a big fitna right now in the ummah in the Muslim ummah you have a large body of people who daily call on others besides Allah whether in graves they go to graveyards you find in certain parts of the Muslim world masjids where there are graves in the masjids you know or the person may not be there may not be any grave there but the person has been identified as one on whom you call so people call on them this is something which is a trial to the Muslim world today. People calling on other than Allah. And the tragedies that Muslims now are experiencing are a direct, direct result of this. Because if you're calling on other than Allah, how can you expect your prayers to be answered? when Allah has described this as being the only unforgivable sin. 
So because some people have made distinctions in the minds of the people that when you call him a saint, you know, a righteous man or whatever, this is not worshipping him. You know, they've brought some kind of logics to people, you know, they tell them, well, listen, you know, if you want to go and see the uh, prime minister, what's his name, Major? Uh, you want to go and see, you know, Mr. Major. You cannot go down Downing Street, is that where he stays? You cannot just go down there and knock on the door and come in and say, listen, you know, Major, I'd like to sit down and have a talk with you. It doesn't work like that, you know. You have to see your local uh, representative, you know, who will talk to the person in the party, who will talk to the people in the parliament or whatever, you know. These things have to take a route. You know, and after your idea is taken the pro proper route, you know, the channel of, or the, what they call the, um, the correct uh, uh, steps or procedures, then it reaches, you know, uh, the, the prime minister, then he makes a ruling on it, then you can be benefited. So they say, well, you know, it's like this with us also. You know, when you want to pray to God, you know, you who are so dirty with all your sins, you're covered with all these dirty sins, how many sins you're committing every day? Can you stand up before God and expect Him to hear your prayers? So dirty? No, no. You have to pray, call on somebody who is pure. You know, like Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu or you know, one of, one of the saints, you know, who's close to Allah. You, you call on them and they will carry your, your, your prayer to Allah. And then it will be answered. And of course, you know, the common person, when he hears it, it makes sense. Sure, you can't go to the Prime Minister, it makes sense. But they, it's because they have not understood the essence of Tawheed, that we talked about the uniqueness of Allah, that though this is how it, things work in this life, in the dunya here, that's how things effectively function. This is not the case with Allah. And if you make Allah function in the same way that the dunya does, then you're making Allah like His creation. He's no longer unique. He's just like the Prime Minister. But no, Allah has made it clear in the Quran, Ud'uni astajib Call on me and I will answer you. He didn't say, call on my friends and I will answer you. No, no. He said, Ud'uni. Call on me. So this means that the case with Allah is different. It is unique. He answers directly. We don't need any intermediaries. So, this is a major fitna. As I said, that the Ummah is very important for us to try to carry this message. Not only to understand it ourselves, but to carry it to others. To let them understand what Tawheed actually means. So that they can free themselves from this delusion. From this shirk actually. It's what it is. In essence, it's shirk. Which is destroying the quality of their worship. And instead of bringing the blessings of Allah, it is bringing Allah's curse on themselves. We also have Allah saying in the Quran, as for the emphasis, and there are many verses. إِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِي أَنِّي فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ وَجِيبُ دَعْوَةَ الدَّعِي إِذَا دَعَانِي You know, if this is, this is Allah speaking to the Prophet ﷺ, Saying to him, if my worshippers ask about me, tell them that I am close. I hear the call of the one who calls on me. I hear and I answer it. These are the type of verses we need to take to those people who are caught up in this kind of saint worship. And which has led them, as I said, to have deviated really from what is Tawheed in Islam 
what is ibadah, what is worship in Islam? When we go back again to look at ibadah and the sharia, we find many, many different things that we have been commanded to do. And what we have to understand is that the essence of that worship which is most pleasing to Allah are the things which Allah made compulsory for us. Because you have many different acts of worship. For example, dhikrullah is another area of fitna for people. Dhikrullah, people talk about. Remembrance of Allah. Walla dhikrullahi akbar. You know, Allah says, this is the greatest remembrance of Allah. Aqim salah li dhikri. Establish the prayer for my remembrance. So much in the Quran speaking about the remembrance of Allah. It is a key principle in Islam. But some people have taken this and interpreted it to mean that we will sit in the morning after Fajr and repeat thousands of times Allah, 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 Allah. Or Al-Qadir, 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 Al-Qadir. And people have worked out formulas you know, uh, blessings that will come to you if you do these things. There's a book I remember seeing called The Hundred Steps, how was it called? By Hans Freelander. Uh, anybody remember what the name of that book is? It's called The Hundred Steps, I think. Yeah, Hundred Steps. But it, what it is, is talking about the 99 names of Allah. He has, each page has got one of Allah's names. But it tells you, if you say this name, you know, 50 times in the morning and you blow it over water and you drink it and you say 50 times after Maghrib and you blow it over water and you drink it you know uh, if, you, if your wife couldn't have a baby she'll have a baby <laughs> really really crazy stuff you know but this is what the book is full of and this book although it's translated into English it, it exists in Urdu and in a number of other languages you know it is quite common, it's amongst the common masses. So, this is what the remembrance of Allah has become. And what you will find is that people, the common people, they will know all these things. They will go and research all of these things. But they're not making five times daily prayer. They don't get up for Fajr. But if you ask them about these dhikr, they can tell you what each, each dhikr is going to do. So, you see, what has happened here is that they've misunderstood what in fact is the most pleasing to Allah. What will bring them to Allah most directly. And there's a very famous hadith which actually people have somewhat distorted uh, its meaning. But the essence of the hadith speaks to this very point. The Prophet quotes from Allah. So it's what we call a hadith qudsi. مَا تَقَرَّبَ إِلَيَّ عَبْدِي بِشَيْءٍ أَحَبَّ إِلَيَّ مِمَّا اَخْتَرَدْتُ عَلَيْهِ My servant or slave, worshipper, does not come closer to me except 
by the things that I've made compulsory for him. This is it. Essence right there. We want to get close to Allah. We have to start with the things which are compulsory, which he has defined as compulsory, what they call the fard or the wajib, the compulsory things. This is how we get closer to Allah. When we start with this, and we build on that, we get closer and closer to Allah. Because the, the Prophet ﷺ continued to quote uh, Allah saying, وَمَا يَزَالُ عَبْدِي يَتَقَرَّبُ إِلَيَّ بِالنَّوَافِلِ حَتَّى أُحِبَّهِ فَإِذَا أَحْبَبْتُ كُنْتُ سَمْعَهُ الَّذِي يَسْمَعُ بِي that, that that servant slave, if he continues to come closer to me, with the voluntary acts. That is, every compulsory act that has been prescribed for us in Islam has along with it a voluntary version. We have Hajj, we have Umrah. We have Fard Salah, we have Sunnah Salah. We have Zakah, we have Sadaqah. You know, we have fasting in Ramadan, we have fasting three days a month, Mondays and Thursdays, etc., etc., all of the various compulsory deeds that are required of us have along with them some voluntary version, a voluntary set of deeds that may be done also. And after a person has established the compulsory, if he continues to build on that with the voluntary, he continues to come closer and closer to Allah. Until Allah says, I love him. Until I love him. So if we seek the love of Allah, this is the methodology. Step by step. We don't jump to the voluntary and we've left out the compulsory. We start with the compulsory after we have established that, then we build on that with the voluntary. And when we do that, Allah will love us. This is Allah's promise. And when he loves us, he says that he will become the ears by which we hear. Of course, as I said, you have a deviant group that has interpreted this to mean that the person becomes Allah. Right? But of course, this is nonsense. We already pointed out in Tawheed that there's no man becoming Allah. Right? No matter what you do in this life, you know, not like the Hindus have this idea of nirvana, you know, you you die and you come back, you die and you come back, you keep going up and up and up until eventually you reach the stage where you become one with Allah. Right? This idea is foreign to Islam. Man is man and Allah is Allah. Man never becomes Allah. Allah never becomes a man. Allah says that when he loves his servant who has established the compulsory and followed it by the voluntary then he becomes the ears by which he hears and the eyes by which he sees. This is in reference to the fact that the one who has come close to Allah by doing what was prescribed for him and recommended to him, then he will only listen to the things which are pleasing to Allah. This is what. He only listens to good things. If somebody's talking nonsense, he says, okay, ma'asalama, you know, I'll go my way, you know. Don't, don't waste his time. No sense getting that nonsense in his head. 
He only listens to the things which are pleasing to Allah. He only looks to the things which are pleasing to Allah. And this is the highest level that we can seek. Where in every action that we do, we seek the pleasure of Allah. This is the essence of righteousness. We are conscious of Allah and whatever we do, we do so remembering that this is what Allah wishes for us and avoiding those things which He has prohibited us. The worship of Allah also includes love. The human emotion, love, becomes an act of worship when it is in accordance with the will of Allah. That we should love Allah and His Messenger more than all else. This is a requirement. This is a requirement of faith. For the believer, he must love Allah and His Messenger more than all of the creation. His father, his son, his family. They are secondary in love to Allah and His Messenger. If a person loves his wife or his child more than he loves Allah, then he is committing shirk. It is a big mistake. And this is why you find the verse in the Quran where Allah speaks about your wealth and your wives and your children are enemies to you, so beware of them. I mean, sometimes if you read that verse, if you're not really aware of the context, it sounds very strange. You know, Islam encourages you to get married and have children, <laughs> and then Allah is telling you in the Quran that your, your wives and your children are enemies to you. Beware of them. They're enemies to you if you allow your love of them to be greater than your love of Allah. How? If your wife wants to do something which you know is displeasing to Allah, but you love her so much, you allow her to do it. See then, pleasing her becomes more important to you than pleasing Allah. See, very dangerous. And you see, this statement, you know, that you commonly hear in the Western concept of love, you know, you know, I love you more than anything else, you know. I would do anything for you. No, 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 no. So Muslim, we can't say these things. Our love can't reach. This is only for Allah. We only say that to Allah. Because once our love reaches that level for His creation, then we have deviated. We have deviated. And this is why, you know, Allah speaks in the Quran also of those who love, who have taken others besides Allah, and they love them the way that they love Allah. 
But Allah describes believers as being ashaddu hubban lillah. But the believers, their love is always greater for Allah. Of course, for many of us, this may be a little difficult to grasp in the sense that, you know, your love for your parents, this is something very tangible, very real. You know, how you can develop a higher level of that love for Allah, you know, who is intangible in the sense that you can't see Him, touch Him, you know, this type of thing. You know, how does one develop? Well, the thing is that Islam is not asking for that love. That love which is a natural process or natural product of uh, relationships wherein your mother delivered you, she raised you, suckled you, protected you. So you have developed an attachment to her which you refer to as love. That, it's not expected for you to hold that to Allah. You don't have that relationship. And to have, to try to have that same kind of love for Allah, then you are making Allah like His creation. That is not the love that you are asked for. The, the love that is required of you is one of obedience. This is the love. This is why Allah says in the Quran, "In kuntum tuhibbun Allah." If it is that you love Allah, you think you love Allah, then follow the Prophet of Allah and Allah will love you. So it is that following, that obedience. Whoever obeys the Messenger has obeyed Allah. Our worship of Allah is through obedience to the Messenger, submitting to His commands, accepting what He has given us. Whatever Allah has sent through His Messenger, we accept it, we take it, all of it. We don't start to make distinctions between whether it came ahad, you know, this, uh, or it is mutawatir. You know, this is our aqidah, and this is our a'mal. You know, we make these distinctions. No. No. It is all one. Whatever comes to us from the messenger through an authentic chain of narration, then we must accept it. This is amongst the qualities of the believers. That when Allah and His Prophet have decided something, that they don't have any choice in the matter, they accept it. You've heard these verses quoted before. So, our obedience is critical for the establishment of worship. Also, we have an aspect of worship in fear. Fear which belongs to Allah in its fullness. We should not fear any of Allah's creation more than we fear Allah. And you will find people not wanting to do certain things. For example, a person 
will be presented something of Islam here is an authentic statement of Prophet Muhammad he says that we are supposed to do this the person says well you know we don't do that in my family you know in my country or in my town we don't they don't do this if I were to do that I would be thrown out of my home and you know the people in my family might stone me they will call me a Wahhabi or you know whatever some heretic and so the person will not do that act for fear of what is going to happen in his family and so forth. But when we make that choice, actually we are diverting something of our worship away from Allah. Because we don't know the future. And Allah is the protector. And what He has destined to come to us will come. No matter what we do, we cannot escape His destiny. So, we should not fear what people are going to say or what they are going to do if we do what Allah says to do. We should always strive to please Allah if it means displeasing the world. And avoiding displeasing Allah also if it means displeasing the world. So what it is saying is that the emotions which Allah has given us, and there are others, I only mentioned a couple, and I said our talk is a brief talk, and to allow chance for some discussion, you know, I'm only touching on certain aspects of ibadah worship and the unity in that worship, which I think are, you know, the most relevant. What we're saying here with regards to the emotions is that if we do not control those emotions and direct them to Allah alone Allah alone in their fullness then our very emotions can become our Lord we become a slave to our desires as Allah says in the Quran أَرَأَيْتَ مَنِ اتَّخَذَ إِلَاءَهُ have you seen the one this is the Surah Furqan first 43. Have you seen the one who has made or has taken as his Lord his desires? Whatever his desires tells him, he does. It becomes a God for him. And whatever becomes the most important in our lives, the most important factor, if it is, you know, uh, buying a, a Jaguar, you know, this is what all our efforts and our time and Everything is to get that Jaguar. We want to get a Jaguar, you know. We want to get, you know, one of these uh, castles that some people live in here. You know, we want to get one of these type of homes. This is our, all of our time and our efforts are towards that. And this becomes the God for us. This is why Prophet Muhammad had also said, the worshipper of the dirham will always be miserable. This is in Sahih Bukhari. The worshipper of the dirham, you know, it's like the pound. You know, the equivalent, right? The one who worships the pound, he will always be miserable. Worshipper of the pound. Meaning that his, all of his time, his efforts, his thoughts are all concentrated in how I can make another pound. You know, I want to increase my pounds. I need more pounds, more pounds. So I can buy this, I can buy that. His whole, 
you know, when you talk to such a person, that is the essence of his conversation. This business deal, that business deal, how much I can get here, there. You know, he judges people according to how much they can benefit him. This is the whole thrust of his thoughts, his emotions. Everything for him is the pound. So it becomes a god for him. And the Prophet ﷺ stated that he will always be miserable. When he gathers a lot, he's, he's always worrying to gather as much, you know, a certain amount or a certain quantity. When he reaches that quantity, he starts to fear losing it. People who are his friends, he starts to look at them suspiciously. You know, anybody who smiles at him, he feels wants to get something from him. So, you know, he, his life is always in a state of constant uh, misery and, and depression and worry. And this is his state. He's miserable. Now, Tawheed al-Ibadah or maintaining the unity of worship of Allah may be destroyed by worshipping other than Allah the obvious that which we spoke about in the case of praying to saints or praying to others along with Allah or besides Allah these are most obvious to us but at the same time there is another aspect what is called minor shirk which is less obvious and minor shirk is what the Prophet ﷺ had said was most feared for his ummah the thing which he feared the most for them which would cause them to deviate was this minor shirk and he referred to it as riyah and the one of his companions Ibn Abbas described it as being like a black ant crawling on a black stone in the middle of a moonless night it sneaks up on you like that without you knowing it because all it involves is just a change of intent when he was asked about it he explained that it is when a worshipper stands up to pray and people are around him and he starts to pray longer or whatever to impress people. Where you do acts of worship to impress other people, you destroy the value of that worship. You are in fact entering into a state of disbelief. Surah Al Ma'un, Allah begins by saying, Have you seen the one? who denies the judgment the day of judgment and amongst those who are included in that category is the one who prays he says uh, uh, what is it um, those who pray to be seen these are amongst those who deny the day of judgment they are praying so that others will be impressed by them will say oh what a pious person this is and it's something which can sneak up on any of us we're in prayer and we sense that somebody who we respect comes into the room. You know, normally we'd finish the prayer in a minute. Here we are now taking five minutes, you know, ten minutes. Dangerous. Very dangerous. So we have to be very careful that the intent does not change in the course of our practice, which would lead to the destruction of our deeds. 
So we're saying basically that the conditions for the acceptance of worship in Islam, for it to be considered truly Tawheed, an expression of Tawheed, is that one, it must be in accordance with the Sunnah. It must be following the way of the Prophet Muhammad It is not something which we have speculated on, we have designed ourselves or whatever. It is something which has been conveyed to us directly by the Prophet Muhammad The second condition is that there must be ikhlas. There must be sincerity of intent that we are doing that act of worship purely for the pleasure of Allah. With those two conditions, then whatever act of worship we do, it becomes an, an expression of Tawheed which is acceptable to Allah and for which we will be uh, rewarded. In closing, I'd like to also point out that the maintenance of the worship or the unity of Allah in our worship is the first pillar of our faith. When we talk about the six pillars of Iman, the first one is belief in Allah. That is, belief in Allah refers to worshipping Allah. It is the essence of the shahada, la ilaha illallah. This is what we're saying here. There is no God worthy of worship but Allah. It is the essence of the good Muslim character, of righteousness. All of that is embodied in Tawheed al-Ibadah. How we treat people. We see so much where the Prophet has thought of those as not truly believing in Allah, not truly worshipping Allah if they treat their neighbors badly, if they harm the Muslims. Even, for example, an issue like racism, you know, where brothers or some brothers may feel that other brothers are inferior to them because of their racial background. And this is something which we should not be afraid to confront because we are developing, growing up, evolving out of a society which was built on racism, which promotes racism nationalism so these things might be inside of ourselves without even realizing it but they in fact are contrary to Tawheed al-Ibadah because Allah has already defined for us who are superior those who fear Allah the most inna akramakum indallahi so once we deviate from that principle then we are displeasing Allah when we start to judge people because of their cultural background or their racial background then we are displeasing Allah we are doing acts which are not acts of worship they are anti-worship they are displeasing to Allah and we become true worshippers of Allah when we treat people as they should be treated as creations of Allah believers our brothers, our sisters first before all else so Tawheed al-Ibadah was the essence of the message of the prophets and it is comprehensive 
It, it touches all aspects of our lives. So we should not look at it as a concept, theoretical concept that we understand, that we grasp, but we have to translate it into action in our lives. Because there are many forms of shirk that can appear in our actions when we displease Allah in what we do. When we please Allah, we are worshipping Him. When we displease Him, we have ended up worshipping Satan. Because it's either worshipping Allah or worshipping Satan. And as a closing uh, statement of the Prophet ﷺ, I'd like to just remind you all that the Prophet ﷺ said, Udhu Allah wa antum muqinuna bil ijaba wa alamu anna Allah la yastajib du'a'an min qalbin ghafilillah that you should call on Allah in worship we should call on Allah being certain that He will answer our prayers it is the promise of Allah that He will answer the prayers of the believers so we should call on Him with that certainty but we should know at the same time that He will not answer the prayers of a heart which is neglectful that is involved in folly that is not just the action of calling but it is the sincerity in the calling which will guarantee for us an answer so if we maintain our tawheed in our worship then we also guarantee for ourselves that Allah will answer all of our prayers and reward us with the ultimate reward of paradise in the next life. And with that, inshallah, I will close giving you a chance now to enter into the question and answer session. And uh, I think food is also around the corner. So please, let us make the questions, questions which are relevant to the topic, first and foremost, short and brief so that everybody will get a chance and that we can finish in time to catch our dinner. We can take maybe one from the floor. People have sent up in writing also. We can take turns, one from the floor, one from in writing, one from the sisters, you know, just various. Give them a little bit of everything. Okay, uh, of course, when uh, Allah speaks, you know, of the, the, the wives and the children becoming a fitna, uh, it, it goes without saying that the converse is also true, that the husband can also become a fitna for the wife, you know, uh, the parents could become a fitna for the child, you know, or the, the child become a fitna for the husband or the wife. I mean, what it's saying that all of those things that we love dearly can become a fitna to us. They become our enemies when they become that fitna. When our love for them becomes so great and goes beyond the limits which were set by Allah, then those that we love become our enemies. Meaning that they are taking us to hell 
and that is the worst uh, end. Thank you very much, brother. Actually, it's part of my notes, but I got the section, you know, when I got the, uh, the uh, signal that I only have five minutes left, I had to cut down. But truly, it was in my notes here, and it is mentioned in my book on Tawheed, that this is a very important aspect of Tawheed, you know, demonstrated from the hadith of Adi ibn Hatim, in which uh, the Prophet ﷺ had quoted that, you know, the Jews and Christians take their Lord, their, their, their uh, rabbis and... Um, uh, monks and rabbis as, as lords besides Allah and Adi tried to correct the Prophet you know, saying that no no we don't worship them but then the Prophet asked him you know don't they make things halal and you accept it as being halal and he said yes don't they make things haram and you accept it as being haram he said yes he said well that's your worship of them so this shows us that if any system whether it be religious system or it be a governmental system which sets out to, to, to set for the Muslims what is halal and haram, which is not in accordance with the divine sharia, then this becomes a worship of that system. Those rulers become our gods. When we submit to the laws, if they bring laws other than the laws of Allah, then we have taken them as gods besides Allah. And so it is the duty of Muslims, wherever they may be, wherever they are in the majority, it is their duty for them to, to ensure and insist on the Sharia as being the law of their lands. And any struggle which, which, is, which is for that, which stays within the bounds that have been set by Islam, then this is a righteous struggle, this is jihad, which we all should support in, with our wealth, our bodies, our time. However, you know, it is our duty. And we should recognize those righteous struggles which are going on around the world and we should speak about them. You know, I, I'm sorry if I, you know, had neglected this aspect. As I said, my time was, uh, the time here is a bit short and I did have it down to speak on. But it is a very, very important point because this is another major fitna which is facing the Ummah today. And especially because of the fact that the actions of some groups, like for example the PLO, which 
is not an Islamic group in its essence at all. Though there are Muslims and some people who we cannot say are not Muslims amongst them. But this is a very compromised movement which involves communists and Christians and everybody. And this movement has some of its branches commit acts of terrorism in the name of uh, fighting for Islam, Muslims, etc. You know, for liberating uh, Palestine. They have committed some very atrocious acts, acts which are not acceptable by Islam in any way, shape or form. And what this has done is it has created in the minds of many Muslims, you know, the idea that that any kind of a struggle where lives may be taken or whatever becomes not good Islamically we should avoid any kind of violence you know the Islamic movement is non-violent of course not the Islamic movement when the time it reaches a point where violence is necessary then Muslims should never hesitate to take that step but it must be in accordance to the ways which have been clearly defined in the Sharia we are not those who will stick a bomb in an airport and just take out innocent people you know, we stick a bomb in an airplane, in a bus, whatever. This is not the way of the Muslims. If we have people who are fighting against, there's the army, there's the police force or whatever that is, has is committed itself to trying to destroy Islam, to stop Islam from establishing itself, for us to take up arms against them is a part of jihad, is something that none of us can deny in Islam. But of course, we have to do it with knowledge, correctly. You know, we have to be very careful that people don't just run off, you know, without, you know, half-baked, as we say, you know, their knowledge is, 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 is limited, and they're running more on emotion. And then they end up committing and justifying acts which are not permissible in Islam. But otherwise, it is the duty of each and every Muslim to work towards the establishment of Islam wherever they are. And when they're in the majority, they have the most right to insist that they are ruled by the laws of Allah. A uh, question from the sisters in writing. Is there a difference in the punishment uh, between minor and major shirk? Allah has told us that shirk is an unforgivable sin. Does this include minor shirk? Uh, there is a difference. Major shirk, a person who dies in a state of major shirk, is destined to hell. If they have died in that state without repenting before uh, the death uh, angel comes or they feel you know they're overcome the, the death rattle starts in their throat if they don't seek forgiveness from Allah before that then they are destined to hell a person who is involved in minor shirk see this may affect certain of your deeds you know you may lose the prayer in which you you, in, you made it longer because some people were around you lost the value of that prayer but it doesn't mean every prayer that you make now is, all, is invalidated as long as you correct your intention back again, then you're okay. But if minor shirk becomes your attribute, your characteristic, then it will take you to hell. This is why Prophet Muhammad had said that the first three people would be thrown in hell was one a scholar who Allah would ask him, uh, what did you do with the knowledge I gave you? And he said, well, you know, I taught the people for your sake, oh Allah, you know, and Allah will say, no you didn't. You taught the people so that they would say, what a great scholar. You know, what a knowledgeable person. And you have received your praise. Nothing left for you but the hellfire. He'll be dragged off on his face and thrown in hell. The, the other one was a rich person. And uh, there, in any case, 
they're, they're mentioned. But the point here, what is the point here? The point is that this was minor shirk that he was doing. But because minor shirk in the case of that scholar became his main program, all that he was doing, all of the teaching he was doing was seeking praise from people. Then that minor shirk became major for him and took him to hell. Actually, this is a very big topic here, brother. You know. Probably the most important point, the question of the brother concerns uh, the so-called Imam Warisuddin Muhammad, who is supposed to be coming here to do a tour of England, coming here as a leader of Muslims in America and an upholder of the Quran and Sunnah. However, from the man's statements to date, he continues to praise his father, his father, Elijah Muhammad, who claimed that Allah was a man and that he was the last messenger of Allah. This son of his, though he has changed much of the practices that were done in the time of his father, he still insists on praising his father, referring to him as the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. You see, and the Prophet ﷺ had said very clearly, "Man waqqara sahiba bid'atin faqad ala islam Whoever honors a mubtadir, one who is innovating in the religion, whoever honors such a person, has helped to destroy Islam. This man, Elijah Muhammad, is the worst of mankind. He is cursed by Allah. Allah has said so many places in the Quran, who is worse than the one who claims to receive revelation? He's received nothing. This is the worst of mankind. So to honor such a person is a major deviation. So such a belief on his part. And there are many other things uh, from the past in terms of statements that he has made in the past which he has never really you know, addressed though he no longer says them he has left them in writing etc and they still remain amongst in the minds of his followers etc but for me that, this really sums up his attitude towards his father sums up really the level of his Islam and that's how we judge the people if you praise 
one who is cursed by Allah, then you are displeasing Allah. You have deviated. Part of our faith is to love those who Allah loves and to hate those who Allah hates. So Farrakhan, for example, another individual who may be a very you know, effective and eloquent spokesman who excites people, etc., and talks and uses the name of Islam, etc. But he is a reviver of the teachings of Elijah Muhammad exactly as they were in the time of Elijah Muhammad. So to even speak of him in an honorable fashion, to honor him, to praise him, this is a major mistake on the part of Muslims. He is an enemy of Islam. And all who would seek to praise those who are enemies of Allah put themselves in the category of being enemies of Allah. Thank <laughs> you.